there are so many distractions in this world that could keep us from seeing what really is important. As illustrated in that little video, distractions can stop us from seeing the beauty of this world or from really connecting to each other. However, even more tragically than that, these distractions can keep us from seeing the beauty of God and from connecting to Him. So in Psalm 19, David calls us to look up, to look closely, and to look honestly so that we can connect with our amazing God. We're going to read this beautiful psalm together. Psalm 19, and I'll start from verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As we've seen before in the Psalms, I've been looking at it over this, over, as we've been looking at them over the last few weeks. This Psalm is carefully structured. As with much of Hebrew poetry, it's structured in couplets. Two lines, one after the other, with the second line connected to the first. Sometimes they complement the thought, sometimes they complete it or deepen it, or maybe sometimes even they contrast with it. But this poem also has another clear structure to it, doesn't it? It's split into three distinct sections. And I think the, the sections bring us through what David wants us to consider as we read this psalm. First of all, in the first section, David called us to look up at God's world and see the general revelation of God. How God reveals himself through creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. 
I'm sure we've all stood and looked up at the sky at some point and just been amazed. Maybe a, a brilliant blue summer day. Or a breathtaking sunset. Or even the, the dark and foreboding clouds of a coming storm. Or the spectacular view of, of the moon and stars on a really clear night. Our sky is spectacular and awe-inspiring in its beauty and its majesty. But David doesn't just want us to admire the view. He wants us to look up and see what it says about the God who created it. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In this psalm, David focused specifically on the beauty of the sun. See, in verse 5, he used a poetic metaphor to describe the sun as it rises like a bridegroom coming from his, his pavilion. The majesty of a groom on his wedding day. That's the picture. And like a, a champion rejoicing to run his course, running across the sky like a trained athlete. Maybe that's why so many cultures have actually worshipped the sun. They've bowed down to it and worshipped it because it's just so amazing. How it rises and sets. How it gives light and life to this planet. And how it gives its rhythms and, and structure to our days. And it does so, all of that, with such incredible power. This is how somebody tried to describe it. Every second, the sun produces enough energy to run one billion major cities for a whole year. Every second. The sun is amazing. And yet we don't want to worship the sun. Because the sun is just one part of God's creation. See what verse 4 says? In the heavens, he, that's God, has pitched a tent. For the sun. So when we look up, up at the sky, we see the work of God's hands. We see the genius of His handiwork, the beauty of His artistry, the product of His power. So when we look up and see the brilliance of the sun, we see a glimpse of God's glory, a vision of the splendor of His magnificence. And so the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies speak of his work. David here wrote, wrote that they do that in three distinct ways. First of all, the heavens speak continually, day after day, night after night. Doesn't matter what time of day or night we look up at the sky, it speaks to all of us who are willing to look and to listen. The light of the day, the darkness of the night, the brightness of both sun and moon, all witness to the glory of God. Secondly, the heavens speak abundantly. They pour forth speech. This declaration of God's glory is so abundant. The general revelation of the brilliance of God is so plentiful that we can see it everywhere we look. And even any way that we look. Stand outside in a clear night. 
We can literally see thousands of stars just with our, our naked eye. And be amazed at the God who made them all. But if you then take one of the most advanced telescopes that have been produced today, we can see far, far more. Our Milky Way galaxy is estimated to contain over a hundred billion stars. Now if anybody wants a job accounting them, I'm sure you could sign up for that job. But the Milky Way is just one galaxy in our universe. The astronomers believe that there are 100 billion galaxies in a universe that's 90 billion light years wide. I have no idea how you measure it. And yet with all of that technology, the uniqueness of this planet Earth in this universe is only emphasised more and more. Despite all the efforts and all of the money put into finding other planets that could possibly sustain life, again and again, all of those efforts fail. Earth is just the right size to sustain life. Just at the right distance from the sun, with the right protective atmosphere, with the right amount of water, and so many other necessary characteristics. So looking at the universe should challenge our limited view of God. It speaks of a God who is far bigger and more powerful than we could ever imagine. Of a God who could design and create and sustain a universe that is mind-blowingly huge. And yet also speaks of a God who has carefully provided a unique place for human life to flourish. Surely it should teach us in our lives not to worry that our problems are either too big for God to manage or too small for God to care about. The God who made this vast universe and yet cares for this tiny speck of dust on which we live is willing and able to work in our lives. The heavens declare the glory of God. I know that many people reject this today, don't they? They think that all of the scientific explanations have dispensed with the idea of a creator. And yet the Bible doesn't allow them to excuse their atheism. David said, verse 3 and 4, There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. The general revelation, as it's called, is universal. It doesn't mean that everything about God can be learned from just looking at the the world. It doesn't mean that. But it means that if we look up and look around with an open mind, then enough can be seen to convince us of the existence and the glory of God. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, that since the creation of this world, God's, of, the, of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Men are without excuse. Nobody can say to God, 
God, you never told me you were there. Because he has all the evidence around us. And this universal revelation, David says, is especially seen with the Son. David said that nothing, nothing is hidden from its heat. Each morning as the sun rises, bringing light and heat, it speaks into all of our hearts of God's eternal power and his divine nature. The heavens declare the glory of God. But there's something that speaks of God more powerfully and more clearly than even the universe. So we're not just to look up and see the general revelation of God in his world. We're also supposed to look closely at the specific revelation of God in his word. In this second section of of the psalm, David used a whole load of different words to describe aspects of God's word. As we read it, you maybe have noticed the law, the statutes, the precepts, the commands, the fear, the ordinances. They all refer in some way to God's word. Also interestingly, David also changed the word he used to refer to God in this section. In the first section he used the Hebrew word El, which is translated God in our Bibles. That's referring to God as our creator. But in this section, David used the word Yahweh, or Lord. That's a personal, the covenant name for God, to remind us that he reveals himself through his word to his covenant people. And here David emphasized both what the word of God is like and what it does. So first of all, let's just run down through very quickly what the Word of God is like. Verse 7, 8 and 9. So God's Word is perfect. It's right. And it's righteous. The Bible is inspired by God and so it is inerrant. There aren't any errors in it. There aren't any mistakes. There aren't any any defects. It's completely true and correct and morally upright. It is our standard for right and for wrong. That means it's trustworthy, verse 7, and sure, verse 9. It's entirely dependable and reliable. We can stand upon the truth of it. We can lean upon it and it will never let us down. It's also radiant and pure. Shines out with the light of God's holiness. And purity, uncontaminated with all the filth of this world. And so it's incredibly valuable. It's more precious than gold. It's a greater treasure than all the wealth of this world. And it's incredibly desirable. It's sweeter than honey. It brings a deeper and more lasting joy. A greater satisfaction than all the pleasures of this world. How we see the Bible today? Do we value and treasure this book as God's inspired and inerrant word? If we do, then look at what it can do in our lives. Verse 7 again. It is reviving the soul. It restores and heals and by bringing us back into relationship with God. 
It makes wise the simple. Verse 7. It helps us to understand the truth and so be able to live in the right way. It, giving, it is giving joy to the heart. fills us with delight and gladness. Giving light to the eyes. Opens our eyes to the truth of God and brings us into the, the light of His presence. It's enduring forever. So many things come and go. So many books come and go. So many ideas come and go. They go out of fashion. They go out of date. They become irrelevant. But God's word remains. And by them your servant is warned. Gives clear warnings of all the dangers in life so that we can avoid them. So we can avoid disaster. What an amazing gift God wants to give us through his word. It brings us to God, it directs us, it encourages us, it enlightens us, it sustains us, it protects us. But of course it will only do all of that if we're willing to follow it. So David wrote in verse 11, in keeping them, there is great reward. This is not a good luck charm that if you have it in your house, it will protect your house or your life. It will only do any good to us if we're reading it and studying it and obeying it. So if we could live totally committed to following God's truth as revealed in the Bible, our lives would be enriched in so many ways. But if we're honest, we have a problem with that, don't we? Because none of us can do that perfectly. God has revealed himself to us so wonderfully through his world and through his word. And yet we still have this inbuilt tendency to think and to say and to do the wrong thing. So thirdly, David encouraged us to look honestly at ourselves. First of all, we need to see, we need to do this to see our sin. Verse 12, David asked, who can discern his errors? It's hard to see your own errors. Much easier to see everybody else's. Especially if you live with them. If you're married to them. It's much harder to see our own errors. So easy for us to ignore the things that we do wrong or to minimise the things that we do, do wrong or to excuse them, to try and justify them. But in the light of God's glory as revealed in this world and in His Word, we are confronted by our guilt. We see that we've fallen short of God's standard. Not so we just stay there feeling guilty. The point of seeing our guilt is so we can ask for forgiveness. So David goes on to pray, forgive my my hidden faults. David was honest enough to accept, to ask God, to ask God for forgiveness for even the things that nobody else saw. For the things that were private, that were hidden, that were secret. And yet he knew that God saw them. And that they would stand between him and God. 
And the amazing thing is that the God, the amazing God who created this vast universe is also the God who loves to forgive. If we confess our sins, John writes, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And once we have received this forgiveness, we also need the power to change. To live a life that's pleasing to God. So David prayed for protection from rebelliously disobeying God. Keep your servant also from willful sins. God, help me not to rebel against what you, what you want me to do. That's because he knew that if he were to give in to those things, that he would end up in slavery to them. May they not rule over me. Jesus said everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We might think we're doing what we want, but in the end it will do what it wants in our life. But this was also so he'd be able to live a life that was blameless before God. So I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgression. David longed to be able to stand before God, blameless in his sight. But ultimately, David asked for this protection because he wanted to please and honour God. So this beautiful prayer at the end of the psalm, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. A beautiful prayer expressing a desire for outward and inward purity. So he'd be able to please God with the whole of his life. That's the kind of honesty that God wants for us. Remember when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray? The the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer as it's often called. He says, forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven though our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In the light of the revelation of God's glory in the world and in his word, we need to be honest before God about our sinfulness and our need for someone to forgive us and to cleanse us and to protect us to help us to live a life that is pleasing to God. We need someone to do that for us. And of course we know who that someone is, don't we? That one person who can forgive us and cleanse us and protect us and help us. When David asked for this help, they see how he finished his psalm. He prayed to the one who was his Lord and his rock and his Redeemer. He knew that nobody else could forgive him. Nobody else could cleanse him. Nobody else could protect him. Only the Lord could do that. Only his rock, the one on which he had placed his foundation. Only his Redeemer. The one who had set him free from sin. And in the same way, there's only one person that can do that for us. Only Jesus can open our eyes to our guilt. Only Jesus can cleanse us of our sins with His blood shed on the cross. And only Jesus can transform our lives with His resurrection power 
Because Jesus is the focus of the psalm. Because Jesus is the creator of this world. He is the one who spoke this world into being. Jesus, he is the living word. And Jesus, he is our saviour. So he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. So this morning, let's not be distracted by the trivial and the unimportant. Let's not miss what life is all about. Instead, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's look up at God's world and see the wonder of the power and the nature of Jesus, our Creator. Let's look closely at God's Word and see all that Jesus can do in our lives if we follow Him. And let's look honestly at our wrongs and humbly accept Jesus as our forgiver and our protector so that we can live a life that pleases our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer.